Well, I want to uh, read through this section again. I said that we would try to do that uh, each time that we looked at this prayer of Christ. Um, it's, it's uh, I think, profitable to not just read sections, but to read the whole thing. And uh, But I think I will ask for a little help again this evening. So I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Well, let's pray. Father, again we come to this portion of Scripture, this amazing prayer of Christ, and uh, we say that this is far above us far above our capabilities to take hold of and comprehend. And yet we ask that you would speak to us from this section tonight. You have seen fit to have this prayer recorded in your word so we know it's valuable and profitable to us. And we just we pray that you would make it profitable to us here this evening as we seek to look at this and ask you to open it up to us. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've seen that this prayer of Jesus, which was given on the eve of the crucifixion, can be divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 5, the relationship of the Son and the Father. 6 through 19, the relationship of the Son and the Father to His immediate disciples, the apostles. And verses 20 through 26, the section we'll be looking at tonight, actually verse just 20 through 23, but 20 through 26, the relationship of the Father and the Son to those who would come to believe um, the church. So... We want to zero in then on 20 through 23 tonight. There are three main petitions that Jesus prays concerning his disciples. 
two of them we looked at already. First, that they would be kept from evil and from the evil one. That's one of the main things he prays about concerning his disciples. The other thing right, that comes right along with that is he prays for their sanctification. God alone sanctifies, and he does it by bringing home his word to our heart. So really the two run together. The way to be kept from the evil one is to be sanctified. But the one we want to look at tonight, the other major petition that he makes, I think is probably the most amazing. He prays that his followers would be one. But that's not the, the amazing part. The amazing part is he prays that they would be one even as he and his father are one. And when you think about that, then you think of how amazing this prayer for oneness or unity really is. Now, he expands on this idea of um, unity in sections uh, uh, verses 20 through 23, but he has already prayed about that. Back up in verse 11. Let's just look at that. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. So he's already brought up that concept here um, earlier on in the prayer. Um, when he brings it up now in verses well, in these sections we're looking at, this section we're looking at, it's not just for his immediate disciples, but for all who would believe. You see, in verse 20, there is a real transition in the sense that he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is his apostles there, the immediate disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And then he prays for them that they would be one. In other words, he's praying for the whole church throughout the ages to be one, uh, united, uh, the whole company of future believers. Now, just a couple of maybe you might say side thoughts here related to that. First, we can't pray for past believers. We don't need to. They're already in heaven. But we can pray, as Jesus did here, looking forward to those who will yet believe in the future. Now, if you're like me, we, uh, we don't often think of that. But it is this is what Jesus did here. So we can pray for those yet who will come to believe in Christ. The other kind of tangential thing here is that uh, just I just want to point this out. Those future believers, whoever they might be, wherever they might be, we can say this about them. They would become believers through the disciples' word, through the apostles' words. That's what he's saying here. Uh, I don't play just on behalf of these, but for all who would believe because of their word. Uh, any future believer from that time on was going to be a believer by way of their word. Now, that could be their preaching, that could be their teaching, but especially it's their writings, what we call the New Testament Scripture. 
So I, I think this is a, just another way of seeing the emphasis that we should place upon the centrality of the Word of God in the life of the church. The church is made up of people that have believed on Christ through the word of the apostles. And so that just points out how important the scriptures are to the life and vitality of the church. All right, now to the the heart of what we're looking at here tonight, and that has to do with this unity that Jesus prays for concerning those that believe. What I'd like to do is point out some characteristics of this unity. First of all, it is a unity based on the word. We've already said something along that line. Uh, Just as we said those believers to come were believers or will be believers in Christ because of the word of the apostles. It is a unity This unity that Jesus is talking about, this oneness, is a unity based upon truth, upon basic, essential truths of the Scripture. Now, there are things on which believers are uncertain, even some things in the Scriptures which we are uncertain. Um, But those are things that are not essential not essential to the gospel. But on those things which are essential, we may and we must have unity. And so he's he's saying here that this unity will be based on and in the word. Um, What are those essentials that are, are the basis of our unity? Well, instead of listing them, let me just say they are the great truths that are always at the center of preaching and teaching in times of reformation and revival. They are the truths that are found in the great hymns of the church. They are the truths that are clearly and consistently set forth in God's word and have been emphasized in the great creeds of the church. Those things, those are the things. Look for the things that are essential, that are basic in God's word and have been emphasized in the creeds. Look for the things that are there in the great hymns of the church. Look for the things that were emphasized in times of reformation and revival, and you'll find those truths that are essential. Uh, The point I'm making here is that this unity is not a mindless, contentless unity of some kind of vague religious experience. Rather, it is based on the revelation God has given of himself in Christ and then through the apostles to us, through his word. So that's the first point. This unity is based on and in the word. The next point is that this unity is a unity of spirit. Now that may seem like it's just the opposite of what I said, but it's not really. This oneness 
this unity is of the very nature of the unity of the Father and the Son that comes out throughout this section. It's of the same nature as the unity of the Father and the Son. So right there you know it's not a matter of external forms or denominational ways of church government and things like that. It's a unity. This unity is not an organizational unity. Rather, it is a unity of life, the life that was there in the Trinity, the relationships that were there in the Trinity. That's the kind of unity it is. So it's a spiritual unity. It's the, uh, if you want to picture it, it's the kind of unity that the, the branch has with the vine. Now, you can say that's external. Well, that's, that's the very shallow part of it. The real unity is the life that's flowing through the vine to the branches. That's where the real unity comes from. A, uh, a unity like that that exists between the three persons of the Trinity. So, I guess we have to acknowledge that we're dealing with something here that is... Uh, high and holy and really quite beyond our understanding when we talk about this being a unity of spirit, something that is pretty much above us. But at least we can say this, such a unity is much more than external, mechanical, or organizational unity. It's a spiritual unity, or to put it in another way, it is the unity of the Spirit. That's what's talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. So here, I think, is the connection between the first point about it being a unity based in God's Word. The Spirit who brought the apostles, who brought to the apostles the remembrance of all the truths that they had heard so that they could write them down and put them into God's Word, that same Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, is the one who brings about this spiritual unity. The one who gave the, the Scriptures is the one who works in the lives of believers to bring about this spiritual unity. Uh, in other words, it's a miraculous unity, not something that man can work up on his own. Um, it's, it's brought about by spiritual rebirth and by spirit-inspired faith. It's a spiritual thing, this unity. Uh, it's a unity of a people who have become spiritual by the work of the Holy Spirit and are one with one another because they are united to Christ and made one in Him. Our unity is, is in Christ. It's brought about by the Spirit. It's a living thing. It's spiritual, you see. So it's based in the Word, and yet it's a spiritual thing. Uh, let me just read how J.C. Ryle put it in his commentary on John. He said, the unity which our Lord prays for is not unity of forms, discipline, government, and the like, but unity of heart and will and doctrine and practice. Those who make uniformity 
the chief subject of this part of Christ's prayer entirely missed the mark. There may be uniformity without unity, as in many visible churches on earth. You can have the uniformity there, and there's no real unity. Um, there may be unity without uniformity. You can have unity between a, a Baptist and a Presbyterian. You can have spiritual unity there because you don't have to have the uniformity of the external things. If the life of God is there, you see, you can have true spiritual unity. So you may have unity without uniformity. The unity, <clears throat> the unity which our Lord prays about here is that true, substantial, spiritual, internal heart unity which undoubtedly exists among all true members of Christ of every church or denomination. That's quite a statement if you think about what he's saying. It's a true, substantial, spiritual, internal heart unity that undoubtedly exists among all true members of Christ of every church or denomination. It is the unity which results from the Holy Spirit having made the members of Christ what they are. It is this unity which makes them feel more of one mind with one another than with mere professors of their own party. Now, what he means there is there can be a unity between, again, I'll use a Baptist and a Presbyterian. They'll have more unity with one another because they are true Christians than they will have with another Baptist who has the same external form or denomination, and it has not the life, you see. So we're speaking of a unity of purpose, of desire, of heart, of mind, of will, not a uniformity of externals. So it's based in the word. It's spiritual. Next, Christ presents one important reason for praying for this oneness among his people. That reason is that the world may believe. You see it, uh, first of all, in verse 21. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Pray for this unity for this reason. He's praying for this unity so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then you see it again in verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved have loved me. So we have here another example of what I mentioned last week, if you were here, that many things in this prayer are things that Christ had already spoken to his disciples about in the upper room. And this is an example of one of them. Turn back to John 13, 35. Well, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So he's talking about this unity and the testimony that it would be to the world. And so here he's praying about that, that this oneness will be a display or a manifestation to them uh, concerning the things of God. And this brings me then to another major point about unity. First of all, we said that it would be in accord with God's word. Secondly, we said it would be a unity of the spirit, not just of externals. But I also think we need to emphasize that it is a unity that is observable. It's spiritual, but it's observable. In fact, this display of oneness will be of such a nature as to be a constant display of truth. This display of unity, this oneness, will be a constant display of truth. The world will have this continual witness that Christ is divine, that is, he's sent from God. See, that's what he says here. Um, if you have a, a scriptures that like uh, the uh, a scripture like mine that has some little footnotes in it, uh, you'll see that that word um, where it says, so that the world may believe, it's so that the world may continually believe. And then in verse 23, where it says, that the world may know that you sent me, it's continually know that you sent me. And I think that's significant. What he's saying here is that because of this oneness that God's people have, this unity, there will be a continual display to the world of the reality of Christ, that God sent him. It's, a man, it's manifested because of something they're seeing in the church that they're not seeing anywhere else. A true oneness, a oneness that goes, cuts across the barriers of, of nationality and personality and all those kinds of things. By our common commitment to the essentials of the gospel, by our love for one another, by our mutual dependence on God and sharing in his life, by our being united to Christ and through him to one another, the world has a continual witness that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And again, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's nothing like this, you see. It's a miracle. So they have this continual display that the Father sent the Son. But he says something even more than that. In verse 23, he adds this. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That God has sent his, set his love 
upon his people. The oneness amongst God's people displays the fact that God has set his love upon those people. In other words, our oneness, our love for each other, openly displays to the world God's love for us. Our observable love, something that the world can see, our observable love for each other manifests his divine love for us. That's what he's saying here in this verse, that the world may know that you sent me and love them. And, and then the amazing thing again, even as you have loved me, that God loves us even as he loves the Son. Now let me read Lloyd-Jones here. Our unity manifests that we are not merely men, but that God has done something to us in Christ, that we are what we are because the Son of God has come into the world and has borne our sins and given us a rebirth and has set his Holy Spirit into us, sent his Holy Spirit into us. The unity, our unity, is to manifest this. And the second thing our unity is to manifest is that God loves us in exactly the same way as he loved Christ. I ask again if we are able to realize that. Do you know that God, that God in heaven at this moment loves you in exactly the same way as he loved his only begotten son? We know his love for his son. Think about God's love for his son. Remember that he loves you in exactly the same way. And you and I are to live in fellowship in order to demonstrate that. Both all together and individually, we are to demonstrate that we are the special subjects of God's love. Well, that brings us back then to verse 22. I'd, I'd kind of skipped over that in dealing with verse 23, but I want to go back to verse 22 here. Now, this is a difficult verse. And it's difficult because it's so far above us. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are. What did Jesus mean by the glory? The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Just so you know that I'm not the only one that thinks that this is difficult, J.C. Ryle said, this is a very difficult expression <laughs> and one which seems to puzzle all commentators. After he said that, he gives seven different possibilities <laughs> as to what that part means about the glory which you have given me. Well, I'm not going to give you those seven, but I want to give you one to consider. The glory that he's speaking about here in verse 22 has to do 
with the intimate love relationship that the Son had with the Father here on earth. The love relationship, this glory, had to do with the intimate love relationship that the Son had with the Father while he was here on earth. There are aspects of the eternal glory of God that we cannot ever be part of because he's God. And we never will be. But in the area of their love for one another, that is the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, because of what Christ has done for us, we can share in something of that awesome glory, that area of glory, the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. That's what's coming out in these verses over and over again. I and them, you and me, I and you. It's incredible how, how he, he links those things together and, and, and twines us right in with the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. So I think this glory that he's talking about has at least something to do with that, that intimate love relationship that the Son had with the Father and the Father had with the Son while he was here on earth. That love is the perfect bond of unity. And that's what he says in this verse here. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. That unity, you see, is a, it's a unity of love. And it's the type of love, the, 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 same, the same nature that the love that the, the Father had for the Son and the Son had for the Father. And that's a glorious thing. So just to summarize here what we've said about this unity. The unity that Christ is talking about here is a scriptural unity. That is, it's based in the Word. It is a spiritual unity, not an external uniformity, but a spiritual unity. It is a, an observable unity. It's manifested in in things that the world can see, outward actions. And lastly, it's an incomprehensible unity. It has to do with the very nature of God and the unity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, so you know that it's got to be incomprehensible. Uh, the love, the oneness that the Father and Son had. So I invite you to contemplate these things, to meditate upon these things. Uh, read through this section here. It's, it's just incredible, the things that are, are presented here. And, of course, we've just scratched the surface. So I want to go on from there next time, starting with verse 24. I don't know if we'll finish up next time or not. But... Uh, let me just read this section to you in closing here that we looked at tonight. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. Incredible portion. So as, as you think about this section and the, and the section to come, I have a handout here that uh, I thought had some, some valuable things to consider and meditate. 